Here in chapter 30, Moses has expounded on the law of God. He's reaffirmed it. He's done everything he's going to do there. And he's really giving that final exhortation to the nation of Israel, that next generation that's going to go into the promised land. Now, he's affirmed the law and done all that, but now he's not really teaching. He's just exhorting. Kind of like when you, you get a message and then there's that exhortation at the end. Pastor Chuck used to do that quite a bit at Calvary Costa Mesa. And it, this, that's the idea here. And even with Jesus, when he was wrapping up his ministry that night, he was betrayed. We have John 15, where he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And he, the, all those teachings of chapter 15 and 16 and the prayer in 17 of John, it's all that last 24 hours where he's pouring into the disciples special things that they need to receive and understand. I go to prepare a place for you. My father's house, there are many mansions. If not, I would told you so. Like all that is his final things to them. And we see that. So we even got Joshua. When you get the book of Joshua, when he's right at the very end, he gathers everyone together and he said, look, you can serve the false gods that your father served over there, or you can serve the living God. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. So we see in the Bible many times, and we see in human experience, where people will sort of make a final statement. When a trust is read or a will, that will happen. My wife and I watched the movie The Ultimate Gift last night again. First time in a long time we watched it. It's such a good movie with James Gardner. And he's like speaking from the grave with a videotape. And it's a series of things for his grandson to go through and learn to be entrusted with the stewardship of the wealth of what he built. And even there, it's like these exhortations of life lessons and what you need to learn and you know, the gift of time, the gift of work, the, the gift of trials, and the gift of family, and these sorts of things. And I look at this text tonight with Moses, and as we come to it, we realize he's just really said everything there is to say. So I want us to think of the context of, like, one final exhortation, like when you're going in to say goodbye to somebody that's stepping into eternity, and they've got something to say to you who are staying behind in time, space, and matter. And with that in mind, we pick it up in verse 15, where Moses says this. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan and go in to possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to give your fathers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. This really is that final encompassing statement where this is that final exhortation in that way. Now, there's other things that Moses says, but this is the the mountaintop of the final exhortation. And as we look at this, we need to consider this passage in light of the church, who we are, our lives, where we're at in life, and the forever application of this text for those who live by faith in Jesus Christ. Those who live by faith looking toward Christ in the Old Testament and those who live by faith looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith in the fullness of the New Testament in the church age. So he says, I've set before you. 
I have set before you. He says, I have set before you twice in verse 15 and in verse 19. And then he said, I announced to you. So we get the phrase, I set before you today. I announced to you today and I set before you. So it's very clear that he's bringing into a place of decision making. He's presenting choices. Kind of like in the Wizard of Oz. Remember, you can go this way or that way, right? Like one of the most famous scenes ever, the scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz. Choices. There are only two roads, right? We know that in the Bible. There's, there's the way, the truth, and the life through faith in Jesus Christ. And there's a way that seems right to men, but the end thereby is death. There are only two roads. And there are descriptives for either road one would choose. There is the road of faith, and there's the road of unbelief. And then there's a, on that road of faith, there's Jesus, there's life, there's justification, there's hope, there's heaven, there's everything. But on the other road, there's the exact opposite of death, condemnation. Where there's truth on this road, there's falsehood with the father of lies, Satan, on that one. Where there's light on this road, Jesus is the light and life of men, there's darkness on the other one. And where obedience brings life, sin brings death. And so we have polar opposites, which is exactly what they are in the human experience. We're either saved by grace or under the wrath of God. We're either saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ or under the wrath of God. And there's no ambiguity, though, as we know, humanity is always pushing for ambiguity in a middle ground where it's all pluralized and there's no distinction of light and darkness, heaven and hell, life and death, justification, condemnation, the second Adam, Christ, in whom all are made alive, or the first Adam in Christ, by whom death entered the world and all died, because thus Adam sinned and died. Yet again, we have the clarity of absolute distinctions, which is, a, of course, the theme in the book of Deuteronomy. So tonight we think about choices. We're starting the second half of the year, of the year 2021. And there's choices. We've been making choices up to this point in time. All of us in this room at different ages and different parts of the journey with adult children, younger children, new children like Isaiah, who we just dedicated. We're, we're, making, we're making choices. And those that are blessed and have a lot of good fruit in our life, it reflects making primarily good choices. Those that are struggling, trying to rebuild their life or pick up the pieces from bad decisions, that's what you're doing, like my sister in Vero Beach. She made a lot of bad choices, and she faced the consequences of those, but now she's made more good choices, and she's starting to rebuild her life, and things are going good. If we had read chapter 30, which we didn't, but we did on Tuesday, we know that God said when you face all the consequences of your bad choices, if you will simply repent and believe and turn back to me with good choices, I will bless you, and I will again renew my blessings upon you. So even where bad choices have been made, and this is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, people can repent and believe and be restored to the Lord and make good choices. Now, I know most of you in this room, and I know most of you have made very good choices. We have to make choices every day. We're challenged to make choices. And just because we made good choices yesterday and this morning doesn't mean we're going to make the right choices tomorrow. There are people you could look at 20 years ago and looked at their life and how they're being used by the Lord, and you say they're making excellent choices. But if you Google their names on the Internet today, you'll find they went on to make very bad choices, and they've still faced the decisions and the consequences. They face the consequences of those bad decisions. And that's very sobering, as Pastor Chuck Smith used to say. I'm very secure when I'm abiding in Christ. I'm not secure at all when I'm not abiding in Christ, which is what the Bible teaches. So we're never to have this sense that we've arrived or this false sense of security that we can cruise. In fact, we saw 
we, Tuesday night and later in chapter 31, the warning that Israel would prosper in the land. And it, the word actually is fat. They'd grow fat and lazy and they'd turn their hearts from the Lord because they didn't need to depend upon the Lord. That's why we talk about the gifts of trials and tribulation and persecutions because they keep us close to the Lord. So with that context and that mindset, can't change yesterday. Most of us have made, as a whole, good decisions. We're still not done with the journey. And we're in different places with the journey. Some choices, we just make choices in life, right? Like you choose who you're going to marry maybe sometimes. Hopefully they choose back. Uh, or you didn't get married, uh, unless it's a different country that has different standards. But you choose, like, your college. You choose, like, I, do I want this job? Do I not want this job? But those are our personal choices, but these are moral choices. The context here is moral choices, and that's very important to think about. So, yet again, Moses is affirming, exhorting, and all this. And the first choice that he lays before them, they're coupled together. So these are choices one and two, but because one of them pops up again later in the text, we'll make the first choice good and evil. That's the first choice, good and evil. I set before you life and good, death and evil. So he put life and good together and death and evil, but he's going to compare good and evil is the contrast. And life and death are the other contrasts that reappear in the second part of this passage. So let's look at this first choice of good and evil. Both are absolute. And the context, again, is morality. God is holy. And even on Thursday, I was teaching the pastors up in Downey, the Los Angeles Calvary Chapel pastors. And going through the Sermon on the Mount, I read that passage there in chapter 7 where it says, do not give that which is holy to the dogs. It's a very unusual verse if you're familiar with it. And don't cast your pearls before swine. When you try to please men of the world who make a mockery of the church, you're just casting holy things to dogs and you're casting pearls before swine. They don't care. They like it when we capitulate the kingdom and Christ to their agendas. Hitler, Stalin, and all those who came before him, they love that. There is absolute good, and there's absolute evil, and there's not an ambiguity there. And God is holy. He's light, and in him there's no moral darkness at all. So the challenge of every generation, including our generation right now, is that we stay true and firm to understanding what is good and what is evil. I think it's safe to say most of us in this room clearly understand what's good and evil. Now, we didn't read the text before this directly before this passage, but that text says when you're trying to figure out what's right, it's already right there in your heart because God had given his word. He said it's, it's near to you. It's already in your heart. It's not far on the end of the sea. It's right there with you. And God's word makes very clear what's good and what's evil. So it really isn't an issue of gray ambiguity over what's good and evil. God is holy, and him is no darkness at all, moral darkness. And all we have to do is look at what God reveals about himself in his character to humanity, in sending his son who reveals all things of the Father to humanity, in his law which reveals his character of right and wrong for people, humanity, society. And with God, there's no shadow of turning. So what he reveals about himself, what he reveals about good and evil, it doesn't change. It's good and it's evil, and it's always going to be good and evil. In the eternal dimension, it's good and evil. In the realm of time, space, and matter, it's good and evil, and it's never going to change. What was evil, what's evil today on July 3rd, 2021, was evil 
in the year 1533 on July 2021. God doesn't change. Evil is always evil. And by God's character of his holiness being light morally, good is always going to be good. Now, when people of faith in the Old Testament, like the Hezekiahs, Josiahs, the Deborahs, the Esthers, they were good people. They aligned their hearts morally with their world vision and faith to obey God's word and God's law. Deborah and Esther, Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat, David. They did evil sometimes like David, but they didn't blame God for their evil or not call it evil. David, in fact, David, the man for God's own heart, said, said this about God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So whenever anyone tries to take something evil and say that's a result of God, like God made them evil biologically, gender confusion, stuff like that, that's blasphemous. Now, in a fallen world, you have deformities and you have different things that happen and abnormalities. But whatever science and pseudoscience would say about those things, we need to understand if God says something evil in the Old Testament, it's evil. And if it's reaffirmed the New Testament is evil, you can be absolutely sure without wavering it's evil. If God says something is good in the Old Testament, it's good in the New Testament because God doesn't change. So Moses would say, I set before you good and evil. And Jesus Christ, as Lord and head of his church, would say to us tonight, WG, church congregation, going forward in 2021 on the second half of the year, I set before you good and evil. Do you believe God is good? Have you tasted and known that the Lord is good? Do you understand everything he wants to do in your life is good? The difficult things that come in your life work together for good because you love God. God is good. Are we seeking good? Because God wants us to seek the good. In Philippians, there's that passage in Philippians chapter 4, where it tells us to set our, you know, to set our minds on the things above and all that. And it goes on to say, chapter 4, uh, about being anxious for nothing and all that. But he said, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. There's peace when we do good. We receive good and we live in good, and there's peace in doing good. God tells us both in the Old Testament and the New Testament to meditate upon his goodness and let it dictate the thoughts and tents of our heart. Blessed is the man who delights himself, the woman who delights herself in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. She'll be like a, a tree planted by the river and she'll bear so much fruit in all of her seasons, as will the man. That woman, that man is meditating on good, God's law, God's word, and it's shaping their thinking and their worldview and they know absolute good and they know absolute evil. There's no confusion. This is right, this is wrong. And Moses knew, and Jesus knows, and we all know that every generation, the devil is pushing us to a middle ground where we get confused over right and wrong. But the distinction between good and evil with God is as distinct as light and darkness. And they can never cohabitate. Either these lights are on or these lights are off. 
It's that simple. You can't have light and darkness together. If we're to take paint colors of just saying white and black, and you merge them together, you get a gray. That's ambiguity. They say like the gray middle ground. That's where you get that idea of the gray middle ground. That's what the devil wants to do. He wants to take the distinctions and muddle them. So the distinctions of light and darkness become some weird ambiguous twilight or something. But with God, it is absolute. So as we think about our decision-making, as we think about our vision, as we think about our goals, as we think about what we're living for, what we're pursuing, we want to meditate on the things that are good. The text I just read from Philippians 4. And also we want to be on guard against evil. We want to love God and obey God, and we want to show that love because he loves us through obedience, and we're going to be very careful about evil. We're going to recognize evil. We're going to be repulsed by evil. Now, again, I'm quoting Pastor Chuck, but I remember Pastor Chuck saying something years ago that really got my attention. He said there's something fascinating about evil in the human experience, that we're curious about evil. And isn't that true? It's the truth of knowledge of good and evil. There's something fascinating about evil. There's something in us, in our fallen nature, that wants to know a little more about evil. Why else would there be so many horrible TV shows based upon mass murderers and criminal minds? Not just sensual evils and how far that can go, but just violent evils. There's a fascination there's a fascination with psychopaths and sociopaths and narcissistic behavior and these things and criminal minds. There's something in us that is fascinated by evil. And we have to make sure we don't feed that. Because again, quoting Pastor Chuck, if you feed the flesh, know this, it is never satisfied. You cannot appease the flesh. You can't negotiate with the flesh. I'll give you, Danny prayed about every part of our heart belonging to the Lord. You can't give up any acreage to the flesh. It'll demand more acreage. So we have to be on guard against the evil of our day. We know we live in an evil time. So that passage from Psalm 102 just sort of summarizes everything best. That, excuse me, Psalm 101. I'll set no evil thing before my eyes. And we just have to really purpose proactively to set no evil things before our eyes. I, we can see enough evil without trying to see evil, right? You can see enough evil without trying to see evil. Evil will find you walking in righteousness. That's why we take every thought captive and obedient to Christ. We don't need to find evil and look for evil. You know, it's funny with those people that have younger kids. You have standards that govern your home when you're parents, right? We all know that. And like what, you know, you're trying to be gracious. You don't want to be legalistic. It's hard. It's hard. Like your parents, you know, you understand. It's hard. It's hard to find that balance. You know, we're not Quakers and Amish or something, and, but you appreciate that. But we don't want our kids to train wreck when in the real world and not be able to stand like Daniel in Babylon. It's, it's a tricky thing. But you know, once you're older and they've grown up, it is what it is. And you can't change it. If you had a good home, they grew up in a good home. If you let evil in your home, you let evil in your home. We only get the one life. And then when they're gone, it's you and your spouse or you by yourself, and you still determine what comes in your home. Said no evil things. So we need to recognize evil. We need to be repulsed by evil, and we need to reject evil. 
Because we're going to, our God's a good, good God. And we're going to a good, good kingdom. And he's got a good, good plan for our life in the midst of this world that we live in. And we're going to glory. And evil has no place in his kingdom. Evil has point zero 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 place in his kingdom. There is no evil in the kingdom of God. And when people want to call evil things good and think that somehow they'll transcend the dimension for the kingdom of God, know this, they will not. Or as I told the pastors, the world's rainbow is not the kingdom's rainbow. The world's rainbow is evil, all evil against God. God's rainbow is over his presence in his throne room. Do not confuse the two from here to eternity. And we make the right choices for good over evil. Evil is evil. And Christ died on the cross for evil people, which we are. So it's not like we don't have empathy on evil people. We do. But I'm not going to let people blaspheme the character of God and say he's evil and making them evil. And what do they want to take from me from here to eternity? I'm so close to eternity, what's it matter to me anyways? You young people, it might be a little harder. You have one life. Most people waste their life. You're not wasting your life. You're here tonight. Do you know most people totally waste their life? In a good decade. Like right now, it's like everyone's drinking Kool-Aid that's like delusional. Choose good, not evil. Choose faith, obedience, love. Know what you believe and be able to stand on that and be willing to die for it. We've all asked what hill we want to die on. I'm willing to die on the hill of truth, and I think most of you are too. I have no intention of capitulating truth. And whatever evil men want to twist against me for standing for truth and take from me, it all gets left behind anyways. If you take my life when I can remember who I am, that's just as well. Because sooner or later, you'll live long enough, you won't know who you are. And you won't know who in the room, who's in the room with you. So enjoy this day by faith and obey the Lord and choose good. Not evil. Reject evil. Christ died on the cross to remove evil and provide a way for evil people to come to his kingdom. And that evil does not transcend the dimension. Everything that tempts us with evil, that entices us with evil, none of it is in the next dimension. None of it is in the culture where we're going to. None of it. Never has been, never will be. Because if it was, then heaven's not a glorious place. And heaven is a glorious place. The second choice he set before him was the choice of life and death, which is the result of good and evil. Good equals life, evil equals death. The wage of sin is death, and sin is evil. But the free gift of God is eternal life to Christ Jesus. So if we choose life, we're choosing faith in Jesus Christ. Now that's verses there in verse 15. He said, see that I set before you today life and good, death and evil. So there's life and death are contrasted as death and evil were. And then later on there in verse 19, you see it where it says, again, I set before you life and death. So there he puts them together solo. But actually puts them with death and with cursings and blessings, which is our third point. But life and death. Life and death. See, as we know, we're born in sin. And we're born under a death sentence. Physically, we're all going to die. We're going that direction. Entropy is working in the universe. As the Bible clearly explains, the origin of it, Adam and 
sin and rebellion, its far-reaching effect on the entire universe. God didn't create death as some monstrous Darwinistic worldview, some theistic evolution. God created a beautiful universe in a young earth. And Adam, our father, brought death into this universe, not God. And Jesus is life. And John tells us he's the light and the life of men. But men don't like the light, so they reject the light. But there in John 1, 4, he's the light and the life of men. He is our life. Jesus said, I didn't come to take life, but to give life. And he says he gives us abundant life. And we know through faith in Jesus, we're born again, we're given spiritual life. So we're given spiritual life when we're born again, because that was of the flesh is flesh, that was of the born of the spirit of spirit. We're given spiritual life, we're made alive spiritually, so we're cognizant, we're able to comprehend God's presence, and the spirit speaks to us. He speaks to us. We know that. His spirit, we're told, confirms our spirit that we're his. That's why it's so beautiful to rise in the morning and hear the Lord speaking to you. The voice of the Lord is a still small voice. It is there in the thunder and the lightning, even though Isaiah didn't, excuse me, Elijah didn't hear God's voice in the thunder and the lightning and the wind. There are people in the Bible who did hear his voice that way. But the voice of the Holy Spirit is this still small voice. And you need to know that frequency. Just like a guy in a submarine with sonar, just beep, beep, blip. You need to really know the voice of the Lord. There's many voices. Many voices. We need to know the voice of the Lord. And the woman who lives by faith, the man who lives by faith, the old person who lives by faith, and the young person who lives by faith, they'll know the voice of the Lord. And he'll guide us. Because Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me and obey me. And we're his sheep. And what could be better than that? So he gives us life. So we're born again to the Holy Spirit. He makes us alive. He promises eternal life. He promises abundant life, and we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And in living the Christian life, no matter what year we're living in, and we're living in 2021, whether it seems peaceful in the righteous reign, or it seems conflicting in the evil reigns, or evil men reign, or women, or whatever, they don't take away our, our life, our spiritual life in Christ. They don't take away our abundant life in Christ. Abundant life is a choice. It's a choice of our time with the Lord because we have a joy that's unspeakable. And the joy is related to the abundant life. And it can't be taken from us. If you let someone take the joy of the Lord from you, you let them take that from you. I let them take that from me. We have abundant life. Abundant life isn't just like dancing in the park. Abundant life is you can wake up and you got a purpose to live every day, even when you're facing the, the most unimaginable trials and challenges of your life. That's abundant life. Because Christ is with you. And we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us so we can face that court case. We can face these creditors. We can face this ex-spouse who's trying to ruin everything we do. We can face these things. We can face the boss who's going to fire me because I'm not going to say what's PC to them because I, I don't believe it. That's abundant life. Jesus said, blessed are you when men persecute you for my name's sake, and blessed are, men, are you when men persecute you for righteousness' sake. That's abundant life. There's a blessing in that. We need to understand. We need to rethink our blessings and abundant life. Because a man's life does not consist in the possessions of which he owns. A man and a woman's life consist in their relationship and how close it is with the Lord Jesus Christ and how ready they are for eternity. Because Jesus said, store up your treasures in heaven where thieves and moth don't destroy them. And where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And abundant life is Jesus is our treasure and our hearts are in heaven. That's why Paul could say for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now it's better for you that I stay, but that's really when you know you're in the right place with abundant life that you, you actually 
you have faith to trust everyone that you leave behind to the Lord, that he's going to see it through. And you know to be with the Lord is better than to be here. I believe that. And I think most of you believe that. We have the abundant life. And God wants us to live in this abundant life. He wants us to have the spiritual life, to live in the cognizant concept that our home is heaven, our treasure in heaven, and our life is in him. He is our life. In him is the light and the life of men. And we live in this abundant life. We live in this spiritual life. And we go forward in obedience. As it says in Matthew 6, we'll get to it this summer. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. It is such a joy to wake up and know the Lord and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. It is such a joy to write notes of what God's putting on your heart. Or just write what you read, and it may seem a little bit dry, but you still write something that you read, some thought, maybe a goal for the day. It's just so good to start the morning with someone you love, like my wife, and with someone who loves me even more than my wife, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful feeling. It's a great thing. I hope your only manna isn't coming from this pulpit once or twice a week. I hope you're getting your own manna every morning with the Lord, because that's abundant life. That's joy. That's purpose. When I first started reading my Bible on my own in the 1987, 1988, I was, I was so excited because God was speaking to me. I could never like understand it, but then I'd give my life to Christ. And all of a sudden, like, I was making so many note cards. I had these note cards, and I was writing down almost, like, I was going through John. I was writing down almost every verse because they all stood out to me. That's, that's the abundant life. That's life. Choose life. Choose life. And God's all about life. Jesus gave his life so we could have life. His restoration, renewal, revival, God's going to restore. He's going to make a new heaven, a new earth. All the death in this universe is going to be swallowed up and taunted by the Lord himself. This dimension of time, space, and matter goes through something in the future that I don't completely understand. I'm not sure anyone does. But death is swallowed up. And there's no more tears and sorrows in the kingdom. God's in the life. That's why we value all life. Because God's into life. He's a God of life. Now, Satan is the father of lies and he's into death. He tempted our father, Adam, to sin and death. And Satan understood death because he was cast out from the Lord's presence because of his sin. Death is really separation from God forever. But I do think Satan's the ultimate Darwinist that somehow he thinks he's going to become God. He's an evolutionist. He still thinks he's going to become God. Because if you believe a lie long enough, you believe a lie long enough. And you're a lie. And if you're the father of lies, I'm thinking you believe some pretty big lies because you spin some pretty big lies. And you're such a liar, you'll quote scripture out of context when you're talking to Jesus himself, who is the word. He's the father of lies. But ours is truth. Life is truth. Death is lies. Obedience is healthy to the soul. It's good for our life. Sin brings forth death, the book of James tells us. So in choosing life, we choose obedience. We choose the blessings of abundant life with Jesus. But in choosing death, where it's rebellion, it's sin. Sin is death. So when you choose sin, you choose death. And sin will kill relationships. It'll kill jobs. It'll kill opportunities. It'll kill marriages. It'll kill relationships with the children who want nothing to do with you. Yet again, this last wedding, there was a parent missing that I attended because... The parent made choices that forfeited a beautiful day. You know, I actually cry for people like that. I don't even know them. When I'm at a beautiful wedding, 
and I see a handsome groom and a beautiful bride in the prime of their youth, and I see parents missing because of their sin and what it cost them, how many times can you give your daughter away? In 33 years of of ministry, I've seen it so many times. Oh, sin is death. Choose obedience and choose life. I've already killed enough things with my sin, as have you. So to the spirit, we reap life. So to the flesh, we reap death. Let's, let's, let's really go forward in the second half of the year with a fresh vision for choosing life, not death. David said concerning his sin with Bathsheba and then the killing of her husband Uriah, that his soul dried up within him and it was like his bones were dying. And that's what sin does. It kills the soul. It kills the person and it kills all the relationships and it kills the calling. It's everything. Like I said, the Lord really put on my heart today when I was praying, or maybe it's just me thinking out loud, but to look up some people who killed good things because of their sin. And it is painful to read horrible things online about people who are once great people of God. It is painful, and I might also add, it is terrifying. Choose life. The third and final thing of choices is blessing and curses. So you see here, coming down to verse 19, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. So that's the last choice. So we get the choice of good and evil, life and death, blessing and cursing, curses. It's used also in verse 16 uh, to choose the blessings. Verse 16 said to choose the blessings, and then here in 19 it says choose between blessings and cursings. When we choose the blessings, we know God's favor. Now, there are those in ministry who talk about God's favor as if it's like a rabbit's foot or a formula. Like there's, they say they're believing in the favor of God and stuff like that. And sometimes that kind of, that kind of stuff agitates me. It makes me not even want to talk about God's favor when people take it out of context. But just because someone takes something out of context doesn't mean we shouldn't teach it properly in context. And there's a lot to be said for God's favor. Joseph in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, he found favor everywhere he went. In his trials and tribulations that his brothers put upon him, Potiphar's wife, in the prison and all that stuff, he found favor. That phrase is used because he obeyed the Lord. The circumstances didn't change who he was in his heart, just like Daniel. Daniel found favor in Babylon some 1,500 years later. Esther found favor when she went before her husband, the king. When we are choosing life, when we're choosing good, we're choosing to obey the Lord, we're doing the right things, we're going to be blessed. Why do you think Pastor Chuck all those years would end every service with the Lord bless thee, the Lord keep thee, and make his face to shine upon thee, be faithful unto thee, and give thee peace. He's just pronouncing the blessing that's there in the Old Testament, which we read in the last two years going through the Pentateuch. The Levite blessing. Paul pronounced blessings upon the Ephesian elders. Now I commend you to his grace who is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with the saints who are being saved. He pronounced a blessing upon the leaders. We're meant to be a blessed people. God's a blessing God. He'd much prefer that our life is reflective of being the head, not the tail. 
he'd be much more inclined that we be leaders of good and not followers of evil. He wants to bless us. He wants to make us a blessing to others. He wants us to be a vessel of his blessings. He wants to shower his blessings upon us. And the greatest blessing, of course, we can ever have in our life is to be more like Christ and be a spirit-filled woman and a spirit-filled man. What's better than that? Or as we say, it is well with my soul. That's the ultimate blessing. If you haven't figured that out, I figured it out at 60. The ultimate blessing that I can have in my life is to be like Danny's song, to burn in you, my love. Just to be on fire, not the fire of men, but the fire of God. Like tongues of fire over my head and over your head. Like the burning bush, and I'm the burning bush. That he's the light of the world, but then we're the light of the world. Like that's the concept. Like that's the greatest blessing. When you're a spiritful woman on Monday morning, That's the greatest blessing you can have in the human experience. Because from that comes all the blessings. You become the spirit-filled wife if you're married, the spirit-filled widow if you're a widow, the spirit-filled divorcee if you're divorced, the spirit-filled adult child, the spirit-filled younger child. Like When you're spirit-filled, you're spirit-filled, and you're the blessing. You're the head, not the tail. You're not groping in the darkness to figure or find your way, you're, you're blessed. You know the truth. You know he believed in, and you're persuaded he's able to keep that which you've committed to him until that day. You're a blessing when you're listening in camp with your hands raised when you're dying of cancer at 21. Yeah, it's a blessing to be healed, but sooner or later, you're not going to be healed. Some people always emphasize healing. It's like, well, that's fine. I prefer to be pain-free at 60 as opposed to having pain. But all in all, like, sooner or later, you're going to get sick and you're going to die. That's the way it works. The blessing is in the obedience and being spirit-filled and being more like Jesus because that is well with your soul and you're at peace and you're free. One thing I like about the series on The Chosen is how Jesus is portrayed in there. And in a recent episode, if you're not familiar with The Chosen, it's most of you are, but where he's talking to like the Roman centurion or whatever. And it's a, it's a fictitious, this is a fictitious event. It's not in the Bible, but it's, you know, speculative. It could happen that way. But just how Jesus is like, he's just in control. Like, really? Yeah, okay, we'll see. You know, like, and that's how Jesus was. He, none of these things moved him. He always did those things to please the Father. That's a blessing. You can have all this wealth, but like in the movie, The Ultimate Gift, there's all these adult kids fighting over it and, waiting for the world to be read to if they get. Now, hopefully that's not your kids, but the more kids you have, the more likely it's at least one of them. I mean, Solomon said, hey, when you die, when you die your kids are going to want it all and they're going to squander it. But hopefully we've raised our kids right and that won't be the case. That's the whole story behind the movie, The Ultimate Gift, that you can be entrusted at each staggering, faithful little things to get more things. That's the idea behind the movie, The Ultimate Gift. So the blessings, yeah, it's nice to have a nice place to live. It's nice to have food. It's nice to have your choice of food. You go buy what you want at Whole Foods on a Sunday. That's a, that's a good thing, right? Getting a nice car someone gave you, that's a good thing. You buy gas on the street. There's money in the bank, so you give them the car. Yeah, that's a good thing. It's better than not. But those things are also temporal. And I mentioned this recently. The older you get, the things that really take on value for me is to be pain-free. Pain-free is really high on my list of things at 60. Because having had the severe pain with my lower back and having even some bad upper back pain this week and having had the vertigo that was terrifying five years ago, 
To be pain-free is really high. Like, you can't buy pain-free. You can own all the wealth in the world, but you might have certain terminal illnesses and you're in excruciating pain and it's morphine or nothing. And once you're all morphined up and on the opioids, you're worthless to do functional things. So real wealth, the real blessing is to be like Jesus and to bring Jesus to other people. To show Jesus to other people. Even if they hate you and persecute you and try and make you bake their cake or do this thing or do that thing. They say jump, touch your head, shake your hands, whatever. The real blessing is like you're just like Jesus with the centurion in the last episode of The Chosen. You're like, oh, we'll see, you know. We got to do what we got to do. What people choose to do, that they're going to choose to do. Governments, neighbors, communities, good men, evil men, whatever. So the blessing, yeah, it's spiritual. And again, God will meet all of our needs. He'll meet all of our needs. He will. He'll meet all of our needs. But in the end, the real blessings are spiritual. To be more like Jesus and to bring more of Jesus into the equation. Because when we step into eternity, the real blessing we'll have is the fruit of being like Jesus, not impacted life in this journey. And then we go to that fruit. All that wealth gets redistributed. It just gets redistributed. It all gets redistributed. I know I keep saying that, but you need to listen to me. It all gets redistributed. Someone else owns your house in 80 years, not you. It all gets redistributed. All of it. Everything. Borders change. It, it, all, it all gets redistributed. But no one can redistribute your equity of becoming like Jesus. Your equity of living by faith. Your equity of letting persecutions and trials and tribulations produce maturity and more of Jesus in your life. Your equity of forgiving people. Your equity of walking in purity. No one can take those things from you. And those are the real wealth that thieves and moth cannot take. Because that's Jesus in you and Jesus working through you to other people for Jesus as well. So what Moses says here is a very eternal perspective kind of thing. He says before us good and evil. Life and death, blessings and cursing, and they are absolute. And that final thought, he says, is that you might cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. And so he is. So be encouraged, WG. Yet again, we're reminded by Moses that we would cling to the Lord, for he is our life and our length of our days, which is the same idea that Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and you'll bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing.